you are, how much you love us, and that we may, in real response, lay all that we have at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn back to page 1184. Those who are sort of regular forward over the years will know that the title for tonight, uh, After Easter, Always Easter, is one of my catchphrases from the past. Most of the one-liners that I have, have had or I've pinched from other people, this I think is pure, vintage, unadulterated hacking. I never come across anywhere. I made it up. But I think it's true. After Easter, Always Easter. If the truths that we rejoiced at last week are true, then they will always be true. That is, he died on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven, and his resurrection proves that God's accepted him. So that's true. My sins are forgiven. Nothing will ever change. He will never go back on it. He is alive and therefore with us wherever we go, and that will always be true. And there's resurrection hope for all of us in Christ, and that will always be true after Easter Always Easter. Now, there's always the danger, of course, that uh, uh, this particular Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, is technically known as Low Sunday. And normally, you can say that the health of a church is, is to be seen not in the congregation of Easter Day, but on the congregation of Easter plus one. On that reckoning, we're not doing too bad in full, but it seems to me. But there's no room for complacency. I received, as all retired clergymen do, uh, recently, a retired clergyman's bulletin. They try to keep us going, and we get these sort of uh, letters from various retired bishops to make sure we're behaving ourselves. And there were two articles in this retired clergyman's bulletin, one from a retired bishop, which was great stuff, and I said amen to every line. He was outlining the, the message of Easter, the glory of its truth, and how wonderful it was. And I thought, that's great. I then foolishly read the other one. And the other one was saying exactly the opposite. It doesn't really matter whether he did rise from the dead, whether or not it's historic. Easter is just a matter of a kind of a restoration of spirit in the life of believers. And it, really, whether or not he rose from the dead is neither here nor there. And having read that one, I just turned back to the opening introduction from the secretary. And he said, isn't this a lovely, isn't this typical of the Church of England? What a lovely, comprehensive church we are. Look at these two things, both saying exactly the opposite, and you can believe whichever you like, uh, and we're all in the same church. What a piece of arrogant nonsense. Uh, I, if one is true, the other is untrue. If in fact he, we, he has to rise to the dead to give us hope, then the other is really just a piece of pious claptrap. And I would suggest to us tonight that we need to recognise that if the truth of Easter is not true then we are wasting our time. But if it is true, then it will always and forever be true. It was on this particular day, on the first Easter time, that Thomas got the message. You may remember Thomas was not there when the eleven met, when the uh, ten met Jesus. And uh, why wasn't he there? I don't know, but he wasn't. And he didn't believe the witness of the other ten. He wouldn't believe until he saw and he felt. Should he have done? Who knows? But eventually, on the Sunday after Easter, Jesus met him. And he knew that Thomas had said, unless I put my finger in the print of the nails, I'll not believe. So he invited him. Did he? I wonder if Thomas did put his finger in the print of the nails. It never says he did. I shall ask him in heaven, won't you? Uh, i find out. But whether or not he did that, he made the great affirmation, My Lord and my God. 
great theology and great personal experience. You see, he got the conclusion that after all, if he were risen from the dead, then he was what they had just begun to hope he might be, Lord and God. Of course he is. If he's risen, he must be that. This is unique. And then it became my Lord and my God. You see, there are some people who believe the facts, but it's never become personal. And then I meet people who think it can be personal without believing the facts. You've really got to be able to say, my Lord and my God. In the days when we sang old-fashioned choruses, those of us are old enough, long enough, and the truth is to sing, He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Five out of ten for that chorus. That really of itself doesn't prove anything. What, we, what proves it is that He died and rose again on a certain day in history. That's how I know He lives. Ah, and because that's true, He does live within my heart. I hope you can sing both. He lives because he rose again and he lives within my heart. And if that's true, then you come to Colossians 3. A long introduction, but now to Colossians 3. And in Colossians 3, which I think is perfect illustration of after Easter, always Easter, there are three therefores. Little three-letter word in the Greek. Verse 1, since, therefore, you've been raised. Verse 5, put to death, therefore. And just jumping on to verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people. If these things are true, therefore certain things will follow. And the key verse of our passage is verse 10. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Two different words for new in the Greek. One means completely different new. The other means what we get day by day as we are constantly renewed. Elsewhere, Paul writes, though outwardly we are wasting away, Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day so that every day is Easter. Some of you made here last week when Paul just dragged me out in the congregation to interview me about what Easter Day meant to me. These new vicars. You may have noticed he's having a Sunday off after Easter. Even the vicars are away at the moment. Uh, it's low Sunday for Paul, but he'll be back by tomorrow. Uh, he dragged me out last Sunday to ask me what Easter meant to me. And I said one of the things is that, of course, it makes Sunday different. Inevitably, it always happens in Fulwood, somebody rebuked me going out. I should have said it makes every day different, not just Sunday. So there you are. It does every day different because we are being daily renewed. Have you noticed the phenomenon in the Western world? We all like to think we look younger than we are. It's a phenomenon. If you go as I've done to the Eastern world, they all like to think they're older than they are. So it's a funny world. Have you, have you had the awful moment when you've seen somebody coming towards you and your first reaction is, boy, haven't they got old? And as soon as they get within striking, does they say to you, you haven't changed a bit. And you with awful hypocrisy say, nor have you. And bite your tongue. Why should we bother? But here is the message, how we may be renewed. So I've got six news for tonight. N-E-W. Six new words. Three of them are what we have because we are in Christ. Three are the things that we have to do because we're in Christ. And please don't look at a watch and say six points. This is going to be a long service. Why not? Uh, no, don't worry. When I first became a Christian, there was a kind of phrase that went around the Christian world. It went something like this, become what you are. That is, you are a child of God, so become it. You are an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, so live as if you were. Well, that's the sort of phrase. Let me put it in another way. A friend of mine wrote a commentary on 
2 Peter. And in that commentary on 2 Peter, he gave one of these wonderful academic sentences. Some of these commentators do that academic. And the sentence went, the eschatological indicative is always followed by the moral imperative, to which you also ought to shout hallelujah. Are you thinking of shouting hallelujah? <laughs> what he really meant is the indicative about the last things, the truths, always are followed by a command. So tonight there are three indicatives, three imperatives. I hope you remember the English grammar the mood, the indicative mood, the statement of what is, the imperative mood, what we must do. What, are the th- what is the Christian indicative? One, new life. There in verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. There in verse 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is because if, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, if we have put our trust in the one who died for us and raised again, then we are with him. We share his cross and we share his resurrection. One of the great ambitions of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 was this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I used to think, Paul, isn't that the wrong way around? Shouldn't you say that I may know him, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of resurrection? Oh no, he got it right. On the Damascus road he met the risen Jesus. After Easter, always Easter. He met the risen Jesus and his life was transformed. He called him Lord. But then he learned that he had to suffer for his name's sake. First resurrection, then cross. Now I became a Christian. Oh, they may have told me it might be costly to be a Christian, but I don't remember they did. But I've learned since. So there's, a, there's new life. We are raised with Christ. We share his sufferings. We share his resurrection. Secondly, new security. Verse 3, you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that phrase, hidden. It's got a double meaning. Uh, Do you sort of hide things? When we go on holiday, Margaret's got a great habit of hiding things that we don't want burglars to find should they come. And Margaret is so successful that six months later we're trying to find where on earth did we put them when we got back. Very successful. The burglar would never find it. And so, here's a picture. Your life is hidden. You're safe. You're secure. A new security. Do you know that lovely hymn, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. I would have had it chosen tonight, but we sung it a lot recently, so I didn't have it. It's a lovely hymn. I've even toyed with changing one of my funeral hymns and putting it in. But anyway, there we are. It's a lovely hymn. It's a lovely hymn. I may have an extra hymn in my funeral just to sort of keep it going. But uh, here is the, the picture. In that phrase before the throne of God above, that lovely old hymn, which has been transformed by a new tune, the lady who wrote the hymn, I think, had this verse in mind, didn't she? Because she writes in that hymn, my life is hid with Christ in God. Most modern versions say my life is safe with Christ in God. I think she wrote hid and meant hid never quite sure why we change words. But both are meaningful. My life is hid with Christ in God. You see, it's not yet manifest that we are sons of God. 1 John 3, verse 2. One day, it'll be obvious, here in verse 3, when Christ appears, we'll appear with him in glory. One of the after Easter is always Easter. Ascending, returning. And when he does, it'll be clear that we are children of God. Meantime, it's sort of hidden. But it does mean safe. It does mean secure. 
you read headlines in the newspaper? Most people in Ford worry about inheritance taxes. You students don't worry about inheritance tax just yet, but it'll, it'll come. Uh, and you worry about it. What's our security? What is our future? For the Christian, because after Easter, it's always Easter, the real, the real things are absolutely 100% secure. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 that we've been born again by the resurrection to an inheritance that will pe- never perish, spoil or fade, kept, secure, safe in heaven. So, we're safe. New life, new security, new status. What do you make of verse 10 and 11? It talks about putting on the new self. And the new self to the Apostle Paul means that we are now one in Christ Jesus. This is a communion service. And one of the lovely things about a communion service anywhere, not least here in Fulwood, is that here we gather all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, socially, all sorts of backgrounds, denominationally, but one in Christ. Many will know I was chairman of the Keswick Convention for a number of years and always a great joy to end with that communion service where thousands of people gathered. I used to say to them, we shall never meet like this again until heaven. I think I can say that tonight. I guarantee this group will never meet again like this till heaven. Just like this. And so communion is very special and it reminds us that we're one in Christ. And the great divide in Paul's day was Jew and Greek, the beginning of verse 11. But for Paul, that was unimportant. Of course he was Jewish. And in Romans, he talks about his great longing that Jewish people might come to Christ. His great confidence that there would be a a turning. But he was now more than that. Neither Jew nor Greek. He would battle. Some Christian Jews like to call themselves Messianic Jews, and I respect that. I have a friend who's a Jew, and once he became converted to Christianity, always he likes the word Christian. Oh, he's Jewish still, racially. He's proud of his Jewishness, but he's even more proud that he now belongs to a community which is neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. That lovely picture. And a picture of a new status. What matters? We're in Christ. When five years ago I went to have my hip operation, and I'd never been in hospital since I was a little lad, when I had my hip operation, I had to the usual question, what religion are you? So I tried it. Christian, said I. Oh, no, no, you can't be one of those. They, they, they don't exist. <laughs> there aren't any Christian chaplains. No, 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 we don't have any Christians. What are you? So I thought you were The next bit was, uh, are you practicing? When, he, when I, I said, I'm C of E, are you practicing? And they said, oh, you must be. You're a rev. You must be practicing if you're a rev, mustn't you? So she put that down, practicing. Do you want to see the chaplains? Oh, I said, yes. I want to make sure they're doing their job properly. So <laughs> I had four chaplains. Would you believe it? Four. Two Anglicans, one free church and one Roman all came to church see they were doing their job properly. But I wanted to say, I'm a Christian, I'm not an Anglican, I'm a Christian, I'm not English, I'm a Christian. Hope you rejoice in it. And in Christ, it's a new creation. Oh, please remember it. It breaks down all the barriers. The world fights because of barriers. You think of them all. And in Christ, the barriers are down. I think I learned that first in my Edinburgh days when we had a lot of Nigerian students. Those days they could afford to come from Nigeria to University of Britain and it was full of Nigerian students. And there were Nigerians from Nigeria and it was the Biafran War and there were Biafran students. 
And I'd go down the rail and give communion to a Nigerian or Biafran, a Nigerian or Biafran. And they were one in Christ. Back home, back home, they were fighting each other. In my ministry in Japan, I had a great interpreter who would talk about his father in the Second World War. And I thought, you know, his father could have been, as it were, fighting my father. And now we were one in Christ, preaching together. If you want the supreme illustration, I suppose, I spoke at a meeting when the, there was a testimony from a Liverpool football fan who'd been in prison for the Heysel riots. Best place to do with Liverpool football, put him in prison. Anyway, sorry, that's by the way. But he was, he was in prison for the Heysel Stadium riots he'd been in. And in prison he'd been converted. And he gave his testimony. At the end of the meeting, because I'd mentioned Sheffield Wednesday, he said to me, you, were you at Anfield that day when Sheffield Wednesday beat us 2-1? I said, yeah, I was, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Do you know, he said, if I'd been there that day and I'd seen you, I'd have gladly knifed you. I said, what a nice thought. And he said, here we are, preaching together. It's a funny world, isn't it? <laughs> he would have gladly knifed me, and now we would work preaching together in Christ. The Christian indicative. New life, new security, new status. What about the Christian imperative, the other three news? Well, first of all, there's a new ambition. That's there in verse 1. Since you have been raised by Christ, therefore set your hearts on things above. Now, the word actually in the Greek is seek things which are above. Put everything you've got into things that are above. This is where your heart is, not just the emotions. Heart is not emotion in the Bible. It includes it, but it's the whole of your being, the passion of your life on things above. Tell me, what is Christ doing at the right hand of God? He's in a place of power. That's the right hand. He's in a place of holiness. He's with God. And he's praying for us. Shall I tell you what it means to set your heart on things above? It means you want more holiness. You want greater power as a Christian. And you want to pray more. Are those your ambitions? Are those the things you are looking for? And if it is, then Psalm 16, that great psalm quoted on the day of Pentecost about the resurrection by Peter, that psalm ends with pleasure forevermore at his right hand. I tell you, that psalm we often read at funeral services at the time of the committal. And sometimes when I read it, I read it with great assurance. I know the person I'm speaking of is at the right, is now with Christ in all the pleasures. And I can say it, sometimes it almost sticks in the throat. What am I saying? But when I know they're believers, then I can say it. Could I say it about you? That you're sure that the pleasures that really last are at God's right hand? That's what my ambition should be. The things that are above. And I think of that again in, my, in, in verse Three, new ambitions, new attitudes. Verse 2, sorry. Set your minds. Set your hearts. Set your minds. And the word means just think. Think. Think through. The world bombards us with many things to think about. Paul is saying to us we should get lifted up above that. Do you remember the moment in the story of Jesus when Peter... First confess, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus began to talk about the cross. He had to go to suffer and die. And Peter said, not so, Lord. That's not what I envisaged. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me. 
You don't think the things of God, but the things of men. Now, it takes a real effort of prayerful concern to lift myself and my thoughts above the world around me, above the natural level of my thinking, the things that dominate my mind. It's good to be lifted up. Do you remember the day when we had an airport in Sheffield? Do you remember that? Those, those dizzy heights, it lasted a year or so. Uh, and we've, we've now been swallowed up by Robin Hood. I'm always pleased by that. that whether or not a Yorkshireman, I couldn't care less as a Lancastrian. You can, you can have Robin Hood if you like. But the Robin Hood airport has sort of taken the place. But for those, that sort of year when we had a, an airport at Sheffield, I remember Martin and I were going to, I think, Korea, and we flew via Amsterdam. You could get anywhere from Sheffield as long as you went via Amsterdam. It was all right. You go through all the world. And so we were on our way. And the announcement came, would you, would this, would you please go to gate number one? It wasn't difficult. There was only one gate to go to. We went to gate number one and off we went. And it was lovely to go off on the plane and get lifted up and see Sheffield from up there. I've seen London from up there many, many times. I've seen Manchester from up there. I've seen Paris. I've seen New York. I've seen lots of places. But I've never seen Sheffield from up there before. Lovely to see Hillsborough from over the top. It's nice. <laughs> Looks good. And uh, isn't it good sometimes that I should get my mind lifted up? Set your hearts. Set your minds. New ambitions. New attitudes. Here's the imperative. And the last one, new activity. Do you know that in the old 1662 book of common prayer, the epistle for Easter day is Colossians 3, 1 to 7. And I used to think when I was reading, reading on Easter day, a lovely exciting morning of the triumph of Jesus, that it seemed odd to read about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, particularly because in the old version it talked about evil, concupiscence and all those long words. And I thought, somehow, does this fit with Easter day? To which the resounding answer is yes. For you see, if I am a new person in Christ, and here we're going to move into communion in a moment, and it's a thoughtful moment for every one of us, preacher including, here's the moment when I have to be prepared to say certain things need to be put to death. If you think Paul's being extreme, do you remember Jesus? If your hand offends you, pluck it off, take it off, cast it away. Better go into heaven with one hand than hell with two. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If what I'm doing is wrong, if what I'm watching is wrong, get rid of it. Put to death. And it's very interesting to me, before I can put on the new self in verse 10, before I can put on all the things that follow in verses 12 to 16, I have to be decisive. Now, there are two things here, and I speak thoughtfully, prayerfully, personally. That's, there are two lots of things, aren't there? You see, in verse 5, it's all to do with sexual matters. And some of us may need to hit, listen to that. We may, we may need to ask God's forgiveness. We may need a new direction in our lives. Thank God this service is for sinners. If it were per perfect saints, you wouldn't be there and I wouldn't be there. But it's for sinners who are penitent sinners. When I recognize that things in my life have been wrong then they need to be put to death. Thank God, God receives sinners. But of course it's not all about that, is it? Yes, that's because wrath is coming, verse 6, and once we walk that way, but no longer. But then in verse 8, it's to do with rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying, 
We don't quite put those in the same category, most of us. Paul does. God does. I have known churches decimated by sex scandals. I have known far more churches decimated by disunity, slander, backbiting and the rest. And they all need to be put away. Do you know that there are 15 vices in the list of the lusts of the flesh in Galatians 5? You can read them if you want. Galatians 5, 26 or thereabouts. There are 15. Three of them are sexual things. Two of them are to do with the occult. Two of them are to do with drunkenness. That makes seven. And you don't have to be an expert in Sudoku to know that that leaves eight out of the 15. There are eight left. More than half. What are the eight? Envy, dissensions, factions, rivalry, malice. Do you, do you realize how that can kill a church? And so it's my plea with you today that as Easter people, which is what we are after Easter, it's always Easter, I demonstrate to my Lord that I really take all this seriously and I want this new activity, put to death those things that are wrong and deal decisively what it may be in my life. And then put on, we haven't got time, but verses 12 to 17 are full of what we put on. Do you know, verses 12 to 17 are, is, is the lesson set for a wedding service. I'm always intrigued. The lesson set for a wedding service stops before the verse which says, wives, submit to your husbands. I'm always intrigued by that one. They stop short. They daren't. And they stop at verse 16, verse 17. But those are all to be putting on the love of Christ, putting on the peace of Christ. All these lovely things. But I can only put on when first I put off. Am I prepared for it? Communion is a very lovely occasion when it's taken seriously. I get weary of people just having communion for the sake of communion. If in doubt we break bread, if in doubt we have a communion service, it can become wearisome. But at its best, it's a beautiful moment. And I want it to be so on this Sunday after Easter. What can it mean? You may have heard me say it before, there are these five directions you look as you come to communion. You look back to the historic first Easter when Jesus died and rose again. And this service remembers that fact. We look up. Who is presiding at this communion? No, not Andrew. I'm delighted to be taking communion for the first time with Andrew as inverted commas president, but he's not. It's the Lord who presides. The risen, ascended Lord. That's where we look. We look on to the day when he was our life will appear in glory. He will come. We take communion till he comes again. And fourthly, we look inward. And all those things that have been boiling around, we know we come in that list somewhere. I do. Please, please, don't look at the frame of these sins and see everybody else there. What's wrong with our world? Oh, how easy we put other people there. Him, her, them. Dare you put yourself there? Oh, yes, they're wrong as well. I'm not suggesting we're, we're sort of naive. But I look at myself and I ask his forgiveness. And what else do I do? I look outward. Part of the family of God, this very precious family, 
as you know, if you know me at all, is very precious to me and to Margaret. But I hope it's very precious to you. And please, so live, so pray, so work, that this Sunday after Easter might be a springboard for yet greater things. After Easter. Always Easter. I suggest we pray for a moment quietly and then Andrew will lead us in prayer.